If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 21 this morning, and we are ending our short tour through the parables of Jesus to understand how Jesus spoke about the gospel and what that means. When we think about the gospel, uh, we tend to think about uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the offer of eternal life that's in Jesus. And that's true. That is what the gospel is. But when Jesus went around speaking and proclaiming the gospel, he didn't just simply say, hey, uh, my name's Jesus, Uh, my mom was a virgin, I came from God, so uh, believe in me, what I have to say. Now, Jesus' language, what he did was he taught uh, in parable and he taught in scripture in the Sermon on the Mount because he wanted to break through the mold that we have of what we think God is like. And so what we've been seeing through these parables is the very nature of God. Remember with me, we saw the surprising nature of God's kingdom the radical forgiveness of sins. We saw two debtors, both great and small, but, they, but did we understand that we are all in debt? God's parable, Jesus' parable, comes to show us that we all need forgiveness and it comes through him. We saw a few weeks ago with the rich man and Lazarus, the reorientation of wealth and status. Who has God helped? Has it been the rich man or Lazarus? And you'll remember that Lazarus' name literally means God has helped. The kingdom of earth values wealth, status, stature, but God's kingdom offers a surprising reversal that all that come to him have life. Last week, uh, we saw the radical acceptance of sinners, that sinners both great and small, the son who shames and hates his father, returns to the father to find mercy, love, and most shockingly in this parable, restoration and sonship in a home. This is not all that Jesus did in his parables. Jesus didn't simply come to comfort in his parables. Jesus also came to confront in his parables. And so this morning, we are getting to a point of a crisis of decision. This parable that we're going to hear this morning from today is situated within the last few days of Jesus' life. And the Pharisees that want to kill Jesus And so Jesus is going to teach to them, speak to them in a parable that's going to give them a crisis of decision. It's going to be a confrontation for them. Listen to how Jesus is going to end this. We're going to jump to the end, Matthew 21, starting in verse 42, just to get our minds wrapped around it. Jesus asks them this. Remember, they're Pharisees. They're the religious leaders. They pride themselves on the law of Moses. And here's what Jesus asks. Have you never read the scriptures? Of course they have. But Jesus asks them this question and says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid for the crowd because the people had heard he was a great prophet. So here's our goal this morning. 
This is a really interesting parable. Uh, it, seems, it, it seems simple enough for us to follow, and it is. So our goal this morning is we're going to look briefly and examine what Jesus is saying in this parable. But then we're going to turn and see how it's intended for a very specific audience, but also its words for us today. And so we want to let Jesus have uh, the full effect on his words to us today. Now, one of the most effective ways to communicate is direct communication, speaking clearly and plainly about what you mean, but there are times when we want to communicate something with a lot of emotion or passion or heart, and that's when we get creative. Consider, uh, husbands, when you were first courting your wife, you didn't simply use direct communication like, hey, I like you, date me. You know, you, you tried to woo them and court them in. Now, I tried direct communication with Jessica, and it did not work at first. I had to get creative in the way that I was going to woo her to me. But we all have these songs or love songs that will pop in our mind that might make us think of our spouse or a loved one or something like that. If you have a song that comes on the radio that might be your song, one that you like to listen to that reminds you of all the love and affection that you have for your significant other because it has a deeper way of communicating the love that you have than just speaking plainly and clearly. Now, did you know that Scripture has love songs in it? Did you know that? I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that's a love song, and I'm going to see, tell me if you can answer where you think this is coming from. It says this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Any idea where this might be coming from in scripture, this love song of sorts? This is interactive now. You get to tell me what you think, where you think this might be coming from. Song of Songs, that's a great guess because if you know the Bible, you know that there's one whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to this love poetry that would make you blush if we read it up here. I mean, it is something that I'm somewhat avoiding to have to preach through because it, it makes you blush a little bit when you read it if you've ever read it. But that's not it. It's not the Song of Songs. It's actually from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, and what they're doing, what he's doing there is he's singing a song for his beloved. God is singing a song for his beloved. Now let me read this for you again, and then let me read what Jesus says, and you'll see how Jesus is pulling from this love song of Isaiah, and he's going to flip it to confront the Pharisees. Here's what he says again in Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love, a song for my beloved about his vineyard. My loved one who had a vineyard on a fertile hillside, he dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Now here's how Jesus starts off this parable. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Now come on. Come on, Jesus is pulling from this famous song in Isaiah because he's wanting to draw the Pharisees in with what he's about to say because he's going to turn it. Here's what Jesus says. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and he moved to another place. When the harvest 
time approached, he sent servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. Hold on. Ah, I'm sorry. He said to collect the fruit. Then it says, Then the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. Then he sent other servants to him, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to these tenants? This is Jesus posing the question now to the Pharisees after this parable. And this is what they respond with. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And then Jesus says, have you ever read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it was marvelous in their eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, if we read the remainder of Isaiah 5, we'll end Isaiah 7 that says this, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines and delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but cause of distress. Now, this is fascinating what Jesus is doing. So let's walk through it very slowly about what Jesus is up to. Jesus is speaking from this very well-known context in Isaiah. And if we know the religious story, if we know, have a biblical foundation of where the biblical story is moving, the biblical arch of the story, God has chosen one nation. Who is that nation? It's Israel. And who is Israel to be? They're to be God's chosen people, his representatives of his good nature and will. He chooses Abraham, and through Abraham, this family line will come, and that's the nation Israel, and there to be a blessing to all nations. Now, what has happened, if you can think back in the Gospels, what happens in the last few weeks of Jesus' life? He goes to the temple, and what does he see there? And he sees money changers. He sees people that are abusing the poor, he sees people that are exploiting the use of the temple to gain wealth, to advantage themselves. And this makes Jesus angry. It makes him angry. He goes in and he clears out the temple. He goes in and is saying that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. Now, if you think about this parable and those that are coming to the tenant farmers, Ones that are coming to um, say, the owner has sent me, warning them. Who does that might remind us of in Scripture? Who are the ones in the Old Testament that are consistently warning Israel that they are not living up to the expectation of God, to repent and follow Yahweh? Who are these voices that cry out? It's the prophets. 
the prophets come out and they continually tell the nation of Israel, you are not living to what God has called you to. And what happens to most of the prophets? Well, Moses, we know he was almost stoned to death multiple times. A death sentence hung over Elijah. Isaiah, by tradition, we don't have this through scripture, but by tradition, it has him being sewn into two pieces. Jeremiah was imprisoned and threatened with death. Zechariah was stoned to death. So what is Jesus giving an indictment against? It's these Pharisees and how they have been entrusted with the temple and to show what God is like, and they are blowing it. They're blowing it. And much like the prophets that have come to Israel before them, so here is Jesus coming to warn them. But we know something about Jesus, don't we? We know that he's not just a prophet. He's something greater than the prophet. In fact, in Jesus' baptism, what do we have? The heavens, and the, the heavens opening up and declaring, this is my son. Now, who comes in the parable to warn them about what's happening? It's the son. And so now here is Jesus placing himself within this parable to show who he is, that he is the son of the most high. And it gets even deeper. Let's compare uh, Matthew 22 and Isaiah 5. Now, Isaiah 5 and Matthew 22, it's kind of mixed in our translation. We don't see it here, but it both opens, opens up with this word, beloved. Isaiah 5.1, this love song, says, I will sing for my beloved, and who does the farmer send? His beloved son. Then there's a question in Isaiah 5 that happens in this song. What more is there to do in my vineyard? The question that Jesus asks, what more will the owner do? Then the owner, in Isaiah 5, he's the Lord of hosts. And Jesus, he speaks of an owner that's coming to send his son. And then it both ends in Isaiah and in Jesus, bloodshed. Isaiah 5 ends with injustice, mishpak. And then Matthew 22, it kills the son. And then this is where the parable takes a really sharp turn. It might seem like out of left field. What's Jesus doing? We don't quite understand. We can see, we can follow the order here of him sending the prophets and now the son. But here's a sharp turn where Jesus quotes another famous passage of scripture. It's the one that we had our responsive reading from this morning, Psalm 118. And it's one of the Hallels. It's one of the songs that Israelites would sing as they journey into Jerusalem. And it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus is giving an indictment against these Pharisees that like the prophets were rejected before him, so Jesus, the true prophet, is being rejected. Now this is where we get really nerdy in this passage, and I just want you to bear with me, because I think it's cool. It's a cool play on words that Isaiah and both Jesus is doing. So the Hebrew word for son in uh, Isaiah is ben. The Hebrew word for stone is eben. So what Isaiah is doing is this play on words. Who is rejected in the parable? It's the ben, Jesus is saying. Who is rejected and killed in the parable? The son, the ben. 
And who is rejected now in Jesus' teaching and in the Psalms? It's the Eben. So where does this leave us? So having the foresight of the Gospels, we, we know what's coming. We've been, most of us in church, I would, I would reckon to guess, that we know what's about to happen to Jesus. Jesus is the one that's about to be rejected and killed at the hands of the Pharisees and the Romans. He's going to be nailed to a cross. He's the true son that's going to be rejected and killed. And we can most likely see this buildup of what's happening. But Jesus is giving us a moment of decision, a moment that some of the Pharisees have missed, where he says that the cornerstone will crush you. Now, there's a, a very specific intended audience that is supposed to hear this and that they were to guard and uh, keep up the temple and they have ruined their job. And Jesus is saying that this is going to be removed from you and then who do we see it given to? The apostles in the early church. But there's something else going on here as well. Think about the tenant farmers. A tenant farmer is someone that... Um, let me think of how we explain it. I buy a piece of land, and I want to grow crops on it, but I'm not a farmer, so I hire Eric, who is a farmer, to come and farm the land for me. I pay Eric a wage, but at the end of the crop season, we're going to take all of the crops, and we're going to sell it, and then we'll divide it out. I'm the owner of this tenant farm. Now, the tenant farmers in this parable, do they own the farm? They do not. It's entrusted to them to take care of and look after what happens is when it shifts to think that it's something that's theirs, something that they think they can take and own where it gets all out of focus. Think of the Pharisees where they are running people into the ground with their religious laws and rules. They're oppressing people instead of being a blessing to people. And what happens with the prophet Isaiah Israel is God's chosen people to make his name known instead of justice, instead of goodness, he saw bloodshed. And this is the same condemnation that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? Do they own the temple? No. It's entrusted to them to take care of and look after, to make sure that no injustice is taking place. And what happens is they see this as a power move. Jesus just got done cleansing the temple where they have been making profit off of it to make themselves great. And Jesus is saying, if you reject me, it will break you. Now, here's where we need to pause this morning. If you've held with me this far, okay? If you've held with me this far, let me ask you this question. Whose life, the life that you live, whose is it? It's God's, is it not? The life that you live, whose is it? And something happens when, like the Pharisees or like the tenant farmers, we start to reverse it and we start to think my life is my own and I own it. We get angry and bitter when things don't work out our way and we think that God owes us something. We think that we've been entrusted with this and it's my own life. I'm the way that I should live it. But Jesus is coming in and very cautiously reminding a moment of decision, this is not your own. 
Now we see that Peter, he's going to make a play off of this word in Isaiah 5 and Psalm 118 and what Jesus is saying in this parable. Remember uh, what Peter does in 1 Peter. And before that, let me ask you a question. I kind of jumped ahead. The plan of the tenant farmers is to kill the son and get the inheritance. How does that work? I mean, would the farmer just get mad and send someone down to come and punish them? Why do they think that they can kill the son and get the inheritance? Hold that. Because this is the greatest reversal that's coming. Peter playing off of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, think about this and think about what Jesus is doing and what's about to happen. Jesus is saying that the son is coming and they're going to kill him. And Jesus very literally is the son that's about to be killed. And what happens is what you don't expect when you read this parable. There's no way they receive the inheritance if they kill the son. But somehow, in this great reversal, through Jesus' death, brings about his resurrection and the offer to eternal free life in his resurrection. And through his resurrection, by believing in Jesus, by coming to this cornerstone, you now have what? His inheritance. This is the great reversal of what Jesus is doing, and it's a crisis of decision for us. So this life that you live, is it your own? No, it's a gift. And what happens is when we start to view it as our own, when we start to view our children or our spouses or our family or our work as something that serves me, then we have the potential to get bitter and angry and question God. You know, some of the arguments that Jessica and I have, it comes from different expectations that we have. And the expectation that I can often very selfishly have is that this life is for me, that that this is my life, and it needs to work the way that I want it to. But who are we called to be? Now, Peter is, is running with this still, with this cornerstone idea in this temple. Let's read in Peter again. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And here's Peter pulling from Psalm 118 again. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now what we know about the cornerstone is that it's the largest rock in the quarry and that it needs to be perfect because it's going to hold all the weight of the structure of the building. All of the weight and the structural integrity is going to be held on this cornerstone. Your life, your integrity, the weight of your sin and your decisions, if you come to Jesus, it's held on him as the cornerstone. The passage says that if you come to him, you will not 
be put to shame. Our lives are a wonderful gift. Your marriages, your children, your job, this church is a wonderful gift. And we are to steward it well. We are being built into a spiritual house of the Lord. This parable confronts us to either accept or reject the cornerstone in Jesus. And if you reject him, you will be crushed. But if you accept him, much like the younger son and the older son, if you hear the father's plea entreating you to come in, he will not put you to shame. And this is the good message of the gospel. And we should see in this parable today the implications of following or rejecting Jesus. The second thing we should see today is what we have been entrusted with. Our life is a generous gift. And this isn't meant to minimize your problems. This isn't meant to minimize any really difficult situations or circumstance in your life, but in a lens which to view them through. I believe, and I've been working on this as a follower of, of Jesus uh, now for however many years. It's been a long time now. And I have, at a lot of times, done really poorly at it. But I, I must believe that as I come to Jesus, the verse that I cling to is Galatians 2.20, that I, me, John, my motives, my desires, everything that I would fit under the umbrella of I, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is I that no longer lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See Jesus, the rejected, killed son, but through his rejection, in his murder comes his resurrection and new life. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray uh, that we see your words this morning and it causes us to wrestle and chew on them. And so I pray that we don't leave here this morning just quickly applying this parable and thinking that we have it figured out and moving on. But I pray, Jesus, that you, by your spirit, by the power of your spirit, that you deal with the wickedness of our hearts that often wants to see our lives as our own when we should see them as a good gift from you. And that in you, we have the cornerstone of our faith in our life and you will not put us to shame. So Jesus, I pray that if anyone here does not know you who has not professed Jesus Father, that you call them to yourself and that they not be put to shame. Jesus, uh, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.